John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity, listen, 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk, and immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And look at this, and that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. A multitude was in that place. Afterward, Jesus found this man in the temple and he said to him, see you have been made well, sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And in verse 16, it says this, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and they sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making him equal with God. Before we pray, I want us to think today, why has God done in our lives what he has done? Why does the church exist? What is he calling us to do? What is it that we're missing in the work of God? We just kind of think about those things. Holy Spirit, speak to us in these moments today. Help us to know why we are here. Help us, Lord, to um, not be like the man infirmed and not know the reason that you healed us. Help us to not be like the Pharisees and miss the forest for the trees, miss the miracle because of tradition. Help us to understand that you are working and you've called us to work. God, just prepare our minds and our hearts and most of all our spirits to receive what the Holy Spirit would speak to us today in these few moments that remain. Anoint me not because I have done something to earn that. That's not true. I'm not deserving, but I need it. And I pray for your anointing to help me to communicate your word with the credibility and the authority and the power and the simplicity that needs to be communicated today and change our hearts in these moments. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing this eight-week series this morning. This is week three, the series titled That You May Believe. And uh, just very quickly again, and we'll not really take any serious amount of time with this, 
But the focus of this series, for those of you, maybe this is your first Sunday here in this series, the focus of this series is to take a look at the seven signs that Jesus did that are marked as signs in the Gospel of John. The word sign, as we have learned in John's Gospel, is the Greek word semion. And it's more than just a miracle for the sake of a miracle. It is a miracle that points to something else, that, that points to Jesus in a way that goes beyond just the healing of the person or the miracle that happens. The miracle is for a purpose. It points to something else. I've used this statement now every week. Signs were from God and they pointed to God. And that's the reason that John wrote his gospel so that people would see the signs that pointed to God and they would believe that Jesus was the son of God. That's why at the end of John's gospel, he will say in verse 31, 30 and 31 of chapter 20, Jesus did a lot of other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But John said, but the ones I've chosen, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Believe in Jesus as the son of God, that he is deity. That was the purpose for John's writing. The first sign in John that we looked at two weeks ago was the turning of water into wine at the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. And the Bible says it manifested the glory of Christ. In John 2.11, this beginning, first sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The second sign last week was the healing of the nobleman's son. It revealed God's desire to mature and develop our faith because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. But today I wanna to look at the third sign in John's gospel. And it's the healing of this lame man or infirmed man that has been laying at the pool of Bethesda. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment, but he has been infirmed for almost four decades. And Jesus heals him he gets up and walks for the first time, and a controversy begins to swirl around the man that Jesus healed. Let me take just a few moments and kind of examine the context of this story. First of all, up to this point, the signs of Jesus have been focused on individuals. It was the master of the feast in Cana of Galilee, one man, he did a miracle for. There was the nobleman's son, again, it was an individual, but here things are a little bit different. Here Jesus is arousing the curiosity of the Pharisees as a group, the religious leaders of the Jews. And the focus now is not so much faith, but the focus of this miracle brings to the fore the opposition that's going to be against Jesus that will ultimately cause the Jews to put Jesus to death on the cross. Verse 1 of chapter 5 that we just read, it begins with these words, after this, or in some translations, it begins with sometime later. It's interesting because John, up to this point, has been very meticulous about times and places, but now he gets rather vague. After this, or sometime later. And then he says there was a feast. He doesn't tell us which feast. We suspect it was the Passover feast. He said that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, which would be the hub of where all the religious leaders were gathered. Jesus goes by a, a pool called Bethesda. 
he sees this pool that is surrounded by five porches or five colonnades, literally. Excavators have found several layers under evidence of this pool in Jerusalem. It was near the Sheep Gate. Nehemiah identifies the Sheep Gate when they rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. There was a Sheep Gate. This pool would have been near to that, and excavators have found that as they have dug. And so they were gathered around this pool when Jesus arrived, sick people. And the text says they were waiting on the moving of the water. Let's look at it again just real quickly. There was a feast of the Jews and Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, which was a pool, and Bethesda in five porches. There was a multitude of sick, blind, lame, paralyzed, and they were waiting for the moving of the water. Verse 4 says, an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So all the sick people gathered around this pool. Now you will notice, depending upon what translation you have, if you have a, a, a new King James or a King James or a new American standard, it would have read like what I just read to you. If you have an NIV or an RSV, you would have not read that little phrase about an angel stirring the water and people waiting until the moving of the waters. Most scholars believe that the most accurate translations do not include that little piece about the angel stirring up the water and people waiting until the waters were stirred. But even those who don't believe it was in the original text said there is no reason to doubt the myth. There was a myth that surrounded that pool. And that myth was that every once in a while, at no particular time, an angel would come down and stir the waters up and the first sick person that got into the pool would be healed of their disease. It was likely that it was not an angel. That doesn't seem to be how God probably works. It was probably an intermittent bubbling of the water, the natural spring, but, but still people believe that if I can just get to the water, I can be well. The speedy one, the first one in, was the only one that would get healed. Again, that doesn't really fit the paradigm of how Jesus worked. He wouldn't say first one in, healed. So this probably was just a myth that surrounded this pool. But there were many gathered there. They believed that myth. They believed it deeply in their heart. And there was this certain infirm man who had been sick for 38 years lying there. And Jesus approached him. Notice the knowledge of Jesus. He knew that this man had been sick for some time, and he asked the question, do you want to be made well? Note that Jesus approached him, not the man approaching Jesus, like the nobleman had just done in chapter 2. The man didn't even know who Jesus was. He hadn't heard about his healing. And so he didn't know anything about what was going on, but when Jesus said, do you want to be made well, the man said, of course I want to be made well. Why do you think I'm here? But every time the water troubles, I don't have anybody to help me get into the pool and somebody speedier beats me and I've been sitting here and I am still not healed. And then Jesus commands him, take up your bed and walk and the man is healed. And the controversy then is set off that really gets the Pharisees upset. He is seen walking around carrying his bed that he's been laying on for almost four decades. He's not supposed to carry his mattress on the Sabbath day. By the way, how many think that's a silly rule to begin with, right? If you got a bad mattress, get rid of it, all right? But, but he wasn't supposed to be carrying his mattress. And here he is carrying his mattress around town on the Sabbath day. 
And so the Jews, seeing somebody doing something they weren't supposed to do on the Sabbath day, you know, they are the religious police, and they, you know, called him out. Why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath day? And he said, I don't know why I'm carrying my bed. The guy that healed me told me to carry my bed on the Sabbath day. Who was that? Well, I don't know who that was. I just know he told me to pick up my bed and walk, and I picked it up and walked, and here I am, and I can't give you any more information than that. Jesus later meets the man in the temple, and he told the man, hey, don't you remember me? I'm the one that healed you earlier. And he just said this to him, go now and sin no more so that something worse doesn't happen to you. When the man heard that from Jesus, he found the religious leaders. He said, I know who he is now. I can point him out. I had a second encounter with him. Some people think the guy was being kind of a jerk in doing that. We don't really know. It's kind of hard to tell. But he went and told the religious leaders, kind of ratted Jesus out, probably didn't know they'd be upset. But he went and told the religious leaders, I know who it was now. This Jesus guy. He's the one that told me to pick up my bed and walk. And from that point on, the Pharisees were after Jesus. There's a few points I want to address before I give you the two main thrusts of our message today. First of all, this was a spontaneous act of Jesus. Unlike the water turning to wine or the nobleman's son being healed, there was no cry for help. Nobody said, come and heal me. Nobody said, come and help me. It was a spontaneous act of Jesus. Secondly, notice this. Passing through the porches, he saw a man. The text says he knew that he had been sick and Jesus acted. He was passing through the porches, he saw a man, he knew that he had been sick, and so Jesus acted and told him to take up his bed and walk. It's interesting in this story, Jesus only spoke to him three times. First time was, do you wanna be made well? Second time was, pick up your bed and walk. And the third time was in the temple, go and sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. The only three times they interacted. And number four, this sign, has now invaded a new realm. The first sign, water to wine, was a sign of creation. The second sign, healing of the nobleman's son, was a miracle that relieved suffering and disease. But this third miracle now moves into the moral realm. Don't do any, don't sin anymore or something worse will come upon you. There's two main lessons I want to draw from the text this morning, and both of them are really really important, but just two of them. Number one, it is tragic to be blessed by God and fail to know the reason why we are blessed of God. There's a whole lot of folks that go to church every Sunday morning that don't even know why they're saved, don't even know why they've been blessed, don't know why they've been redeemed. It's tragic. They don't know their purpose in life. They don't know what God has called them to do. That was the case with this man. Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. And he took up his bed and walked and then just kind of walked around. And he just happened to meet Jesus again in the temple. And notice the text and how it reads. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, see that you've been made well. Now sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. That man didn't even know why Jesus had healed him. He didn't even know why the miracle had occurred. Now, the attitude of the Pharisees is not an unexpected attitude. They were blind to this great spiritual and moral victory. They, as the text 
says about the Pharisees often, they strained at a gnat while swallowing a camel. The man is walking after 38 years, but oh, he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. Their response was not unexpected. But Jesus wanted to make sure the man knew why he was healed. Jesus said, I delivered you. That's the whole meaning of today. You are now made whole. Go and sin no more. In other words, Jesus is saying to him, I delivered you so you could be whole, so you could be well, so that you could be free, so that you can go and sin not no more. I didn't just heal you so you could walk. I healed you so you could have a new life, a restored life. God blesses us so that we can bless. Say amen if you believe that. That's the reason he works in our lives. This began all the way back with the call of Abraham. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you, Abraham, shall be a blessing. The whole reason God blesses us is so we can bless. That's the whole way this man was made whole so he could go and sin no more and live a life that helped others and changed other people's lives. Please listen to me. We are not blessed to be entitled. We are blessed to bless. If God prospers us financially, it is not for us to hoard our resources. The Bible says he has given seed to the sower. He has blessed us financially so that we can bless others. Say amen if you believe that. He's given us seed so that we can bless. God finds people that will do that and he blesses them because he knows that they are a channel through which he can bless others. We've been forgiven to show grace. Freely we've received, freely we are to give. Remember the man that, that had just a little bit of a debt to pay to his owner and his owner, his master was gonna throw him in prison and he said, please, please give me time. And so he exonerated the man, he set him free. And that man who had just a little, or had a huge debt, excuse me, went out and found a friend that had a little debt and he demanded that that man pay him that little debt even though he had been forgiven this huge debt. That man didn't understand that he had been given grace so that he could give grace. Jesus didn't save us so we could become the religious police. Say amen if you believe that. He didn't save us so we can become critical of everybody else and become bitter when somebody does something we don't like. He saved us freely we have received so that freely we can give. We have been blessed to bless. If you've been given a gift, you've been gifted that gift to use that gift. Romans 12, 6 says we have differing gifts, so let us use them. In 1 Peter 4, 10, God says he has given all of his gifts to minister and to be a good steward of the manifold grace of God. If God has blessed you and gifted you, you are to use that to bless others. How many believe that's true this morning? He blesses us to bless. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 3, when you are blessed to bless, and you do use your blessing to bless others, you yourself become more blessed. Isn't that the truth? 
When God blesses you, whether it's financially or, or he blesses you with a gift or he blesses you with, a, with an ability or he blesses you with resources and you bless somebody else, what does that do for you? It just blesses you more. You've been blessed, so you will bless, and in blessing, you inherit a blessing. There was a YouTube video that a young boy came across of a uh, small sheep that was stuck headfirst in a long, narrow trench which had been dug beside a road. And the boy uses his hands and belts around the leg of the sheep to rescue the trapped sheep. Then immediately, on being set free, the sheep takes a few stumbling steps and then a couple of careful, joyful leaps only to land headfirst back in the same trench further along the road. The audio then records the sheep buying helplessly after finding itself right back in the same situation. If you were to see that video, you can look it up after church today, not during church today. You can look it up after church today. You will find comments on that video. One person said, the story of my life. Another person said, that's why Jesus called us sheep. Somebody else said, me and Jesus on a regular basis. Somebody said, Jesus said in John 5, 14, behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Someone else said, this is a great representation of what believers do after Christ Jesus drags us out of a ditch. We fall, jump right back in, and need to be saved again. Wretched sinners are we. So sad. And yet, we do this because we fail to know the reason that God has blessed us. He went to that man and said, I didn't just heal you so you can walk. I healed you so you could live a victorious life. Now be free. Walk free. Go and sin no more. You're sitting here today because God has blessed you and saved you, not to wallow in self-pity and ongoing defeat, but to walk in victory and to grow in Jesus Christ, to be a blessing to others. You were created for good works, and God wants to use you. How many believe that to be true? What a tragedy to be blessed and not know why we're blessed. Secondly, it is tragic to observe the work of God and not understand his heart. The religious leaders saw the man walking with his bed on the Sabbath, and instead of rejoicing in his miracle, they focused on his failure. Instead of rejoicing that this man was now free, they saw one thing he was doing wrong, and he was carrying his mattress on the Sabbath day, and they focused on that. You know, there are Christians they say they're Christians, that focus more on people's faults than they do on the victories that they are winning. There are those who see brand new Christians and they wanna kick them the first step they take or the first failure they make. That's not the kind of people God has called us to be, amen? amen. But they saw that, they saw his failure, breaking of the Sabbath, it's not like they didn't know the man. This man had been on the welfare rolls for 38 years. There was no excuse for them. 
They should have rejoiced with him. They knew that this man had been set free, but they ignored the man and saw the mattress on the Sabbath. He even tried to bring attention to his new condition. He who made me whole and made me well told me to pick up my mat. They didn't care that he was whole. They didn't care that he was well. They just cared that he was doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing on that day. After this, he met Jesus in the temple, and Jesus told him the reason, go and sin no more. And so he went and he told the Pharisees that it was Jesus. And the text says this, for that reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. I'm going to challenge your thinking for the next 10 minutes or so. Look at the response of Jesus that reveals his heart and his purpose. Here's what Jesus said. My father has been working until now, so I have been working. There's, there's a really powerful truth here. The New Living Translation says it this way, my father is always working, and so am I. Notice this, while they fought over the Sabbath rest, Jesus and his father were at work. Those religious folks had sat down. They were taking it easy. It was rest day for them. Jesus could not rest while one of his beloved was still hurting. Aren't you thankful for that? G. Campbell Morgan says, the reason why you see that man carried his mattress on the Sabbath day, a healed man is to be, I love this, is to be found in the restlessness of God, in the presence of all human agony, even though it results from sin. In other words, God can't rest as long as his children are in agony as long as they are broken, as long as they're falling short of his plan for this life, is their lives. And I think this teaches us something about work in the kingdom. And I just say to you, while God does not want us to be unhealthy, there is certainly a biblical precedent for not being so self-consumed that we fail to meet the urgency of the need. I have probably been accused of overdoing it sometimes. I like to work. I'm passionate about ministry. I've known I was going to do this since I was 16. And I, I probably at times could back off. But I get this sense if there's an urgent need and people are dying and going to hell and the church has a way to reach them and if the father's at work, somehow I think we ought to be working as well. Say amen if you believe that. Jesus said in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't say there are four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes right now. They're white already for the harvest. John 9, 4, Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day because the night is coming when no man can work. Jesus is saying there's limited time here. There's limited time. I can't miss the Sabbath day. If there's a need, this man needs healed. There's limited time. My father is working, so I'm going to work too. That's the heart of Jesus. Matthew, Mark 3, 20. 
His heart is so revealed that some of his family thought he was crazy. The multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. That's how crowded it was. But when his own people, that's his family, heard about this, they went out to get a hold of Jesus because they said he's out of his mind. He was so urgent about the need that they tried to rescue him from his urgency. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 11, knowing therefore that the terror terror of the Lord, we persuade men. If you go on into verse number 13, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, if one died for all, then all died. Paul said, I've got to be about the business of the Father. I know the terror of the Lord, and I know the love of Christ that constrains me, compels me. More importantly, this reveals a powerful truth about the heart of God. Please hear me. There can be no rest for God as long as humanity is suffering. This man had lived in the continuity of agony and did not know why. Jesus was not going to stop and rest and wait till the next day. Sabbath or not, that man was laying by the pool, living beneath his potential, bound by sin and affliction. And Jesus said, pick up your bed and walk and go and sin no more. Be free today. We're not waiting until tomorrow. While the Pharisees, thinking they understood the heart of God, were demanding rest, Jesus said, my father's working, and so am I. Isn't that powerful? God was at work. This truth is comforting on two levels. Number one, he's never too busy for me. How many are thankful for that? How many are thankful that God doesn't take a day off to help us. Aren't you thankful for that? He is never too busy for me. And secondly, I think it explains our own sense of restlessness. Let's just stand with me if you would. I know it's pretty early, but stand with me if you would. Uh, I'm asking you to stand not so you run away. I'm asking you to stand so you're really focused here in these last couple of moments. This is a challenging word to me. I hope it is to you. And I don't know that, and I pray that I will, but I don't know that I'll articulate this the way I feel it in my heart. But there is in this text an invitation to godly restlessness. Augustine said it this way, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. That's a great statement. I I don't know if you ever um, feel a sense of restlessness in the world in which we live. I do. it's, It's not unhappiness. It's not depression. It's not discouragement. It's just a sense of restlessness. How many know the world is not like it's supposed to be? Do you know that? Some of you have children and grandchildren not like they're supposed to be. You have friends, you have coworkers. 
The world is broken. It's broken. And there's just a sense of restlessness in the heart of the child of God that, that can't rest completely until that urgency goes away. That restlessness is in a sense saying, my father's working, Jesus is working. They feel the urgency, I wanna feel that too. So what does godly restlessness look like? Number one, I think it is to admit that we are exiles and we are not in our true home. I hope you know that. I hope you know this isn't the best it gets. And it's good. I love my life. It's a good life. But this, how many know this is not the best it gets? Our citizenship is in heaven. We are looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. We are strangers and foreigners. And sometimes, oftentimes, misunderstood because we don't really understand the language of the world. We're not supposed to understand the language of the world. This is not our home. This is not where we ultimately belong. So there's that sense of restlessness that that I'm here and I'm here for a purpose, but this is not the end. And so secondly, we should yearn for and expect the return of Christ. Revelation 22, seven says the spirit and the bride, you are the bride, we are the bride, say come. So godly restlessness has in it a desire for Jesus to come and make things right. Thirdly, godly restlessness is committed to living a holy life. First Peter 1, 17, remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites, he will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during the time here as temporary residence. First Peter 2, 11, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Live holy lives. Listen, you don't belong here, so don't get drugged down by here. I mean, we have freedoms, we have liberties, but why get drugged down by something that belongs to this world if this is not our home? Four, treat the things of this world as they really are. They're temporary. Second Corinthians 4, 16, that's why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Our present troubles are small and won't last very long, but they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now because we fix our gaze on the things we cannot see for the things which we see now will soon be gone. The things we cannot see will last forever. Treat the things of this world as they truly are temporary. And number five, make God's heart your heart and his priority yours. I I ask you to think about why are we here? Why is the church here? What is the priority of God? Amy Carmichael, an Irish missionary to India said this, we will have eternity to celebrate the victories, but only a few hours before sunset to win them. Wow. I'm so glad at what God has done, so thankful for what God has done at Glad Tidings, but how many believe he's not done yet? Let's not just get caught in celebrating the victories. This is a great statement that came out of the International Missionary Council of Jerusalem, 1928, herein lies the Christian motive. It is simple, we cannot live without Christ. 
and we cannot bear to think of men living without him. We believe in a Christ-like world. We know nothing better. We can be content with nothing less. There ought to be a restlessness in our hearts until people know Christ, until this world is set right. And it may not happen in our lifetime. It may not happen, probably won't happen until Jesus comes. But we need to have a restlessness that says, until he comes, he's working and I'm working too. And finally, Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. I can say that because I wrote a paper on him one time. He says, missions after all is simply this. Every heart with Christ is a missionary. Every heart without Christ is a mission field. I have been bought at a price. I will live every moment of this day so that the great purchaser of my soul will receive the full reward of his suffering. What a great line. Can I just ask you, will you live every moment of this day so that the one who bought you with a price will receive the full reward of his suffering? Jesus said, my father is working hitherto. I must work. There's a world around us that needs Jesus. And it's our responsibility to have a holy, godly, restlessness until they come to know him. Father, thank you for your word today. Now would you challenge our hearts in these final closing moments to live lives that reflect knowing who we are, strangers, and aliens in this place, but with hearts toward your coming and the making of all things right. I pray this in Jesus' name. With your head still bowed for just a moment. If you're here today, two questions. Number one, you may be here and you've never invited Jesus to be the Lord of your life. And you say, Pastor Kevin, I, um, I want to serve him. I want to give my life to him. Would you pray for me today? I want to surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus. Anyone in this room that would raise a hand and say, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life today. Is there anyone in this place that would say that? Pray for me today. With your head still bowed for just a moment, let me ask this question. How many would say, Pastor Kevin, I hear the word of the Lord today. And I want to say with Zinzendorf, my life was bought with a price. And I'm going to live this day so that the purchaser of my soul receives the full reward of his suffering. I'm going to give my life completely to him and surrender to him fully whatever he calls me to do. How many would raise your hand with me and say that's the desire of my heart? Can we just worship together in these closing moments? Worship him before.